Hello and welcome back to the Basic Bible Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Thompson. He is risen. He's risen indeed. All right, joining with me is Mr. Ray Jewell, our usual co-host. Ray, happy Easter. Happy Easter, Kevin. It's always uh, a great time of reflection and celebration. And we are, today. this is our special Easter edition, and uh, I, I'm posting this on Easter Sunday, if you're, if you're listening to it as, as soon as I post it, which I hope you all do. Um, we have a special treat today. Uh, that, that special treat is Ray and I aren't going to be talking much. <laughs> um, instead, we're going to let someone else do all the talking today. We're going to air a message given by uh, Ray and I's good friend, Lee Strobel. Um, yeah, we're, be- we're best buds. Yeah, hey, right? <laughs> hey, I've driven him around town. Yeah. <laughs> and you and I have both uh, had a chance to chat with him. Yes. He's been on our podcast. But uh, back in 2019, uh, Mr. Strobel was right here in this building we're recording at now, Rock County Christian School. And he gave a message about evidences for, for evidences specifically for the resurrection. And so we're going to air that here today on this, on this Easter edition mm-hmm. of the podcast. So I hope that's a blessing to you. So... Uh, you know Lee Strobel, uh, the, who wrote The Case for Christ, and uh, a lot of other books with that moniker, and uh, just a, a great blessing to the church. So here he is, uh, Lee Strobel. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. How many were here last night? Okay, quite a few. So if I say I appreciate you, you know what I'm saying. I appreciate all y'all. That's what I want to say. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I had a great time last night as we uh, cast the vision for um, people to invest in what God is doing at Rock County Christian School. Met some wonderful, wonderful people and uh, really have been looking forward to this morning because uh, it's an opportunity to talk about the evidence for Jesus being the unique Son of God. And, you know, I was an atheist for most of my life, and I'm sort of atoning for all that by spending my life now <laughs> traveling around and telling people about the evidence that I found convincing that Jesus didn't just claim to be the Son of God, but he backed up that claim by returning from the dead. But i got to warn you about something. Sometimes when I do this, it does not go well. (laughs) I'm just telling you up front. I had the most embarrassing thing happen. I was down south speaking at a conference and talking about this kind of stuff, and my buddy Mark Middleberg was with me. The next day, we had to fly home, so we had to get some breakfast. And we saw one of these Cracker Barrel restaurants. Are you, you familiar with Cracker Barrel? Yeah. Well, I've never been to one. And he said, let's try it. So I said, okay. So we noticed they have rocking chairs on the front porch where people sit and people watch while they're waiting for a table. I don't, do they all have that? Okay. So in order for us to get to the front door, we had to walk in front of two people in rocking chairs. First one was a young woman, about 18 years old. Dark hair, dark eyes, young man about the same age sitting next to her. We had to walk in front of them to get to the front door. That's not a big deal, right? So we're walking along, and just as I step in front of this young woman, I hear her say, what's a deist? I thought I just wrote a book about that. So I turned on my heel, I looked her in the eye, and I said, young lady, a deist is someone who believes that God created the universe, and then he walked away. I said, a deist is someone who believes that God sort of wound up the universe like a giant clock and is just letting it tick down. I said, a deist is someone who believes that God is distant and disinterested in us. But I said, that's not what the evidence shows. 
began to give her the evidence for God's involvement with the cosmos, God's involvement with humankind, started to give her all these statistics, all these facts, all this uh, evidence, started to talk about the evidence of cosmology and physics and biochemistry and genetics. I'm just laying this stuff on her, and she's looking at me, and her eyes are getting bigger and bigger, and I'm on a roll now. You can't stop me. Talk about Jesus entering into human history, the incarnation, his miracles, his death. I started to give her the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And she's staring at me, and her eyes are getting bigger and bigger. And I turned to my friend, and I said, could you believe this? I happened to walk in front of her. She said, what's a deist? My friend said, Lee. She said, buenos dias. <laughs> I really wish that were a joke. That's what happened. It was so embarrassing. She was freaking out, I will tell you that. I, she, was, she was definitely freaking out. But you know what the good news was? The ice was already broken. How do you not get into a spiritual conversation at that point? And it turned out that she was there with her boyfriend for the state track meet. And they took us back to the hotel where the coach was and all the athletes, and we got to talk about Jesus for about 45 minutes. So it turned out all right. Man, that was embarrassing. That was embarrassing. <laughs> So when I got this kind invitation to be with you today, I thought, well, what can I talk about not, and not embarrass myself? Uh, and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do something simple. I'm just going to tell you a story. It's a true story. It's my story. It's a story that begins in atheism. Because I decided at a rather young age that God does not and cannot exist. You know, I thought that God didn't create people, but people created God. Why? Because they were afraid of death. So they made up this idea of heaven and an afterlife to make them feel better about dying. That's what I thought. I mean, I just thought the mere concept of an all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe, come on, it's crazy, wasn't even worth my time to check out. Now, granted, I tend to be a skeptical person. My background's in journalism and law. So you can imagine, put those two things together, what kind of a jerk, the, the skeptic that you get. <laughs> I was legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, and we used to pride ourselves on our skepticism. We wouldn't accept anybody's word at face value. We always tried to get at least two sources to confirm a fact before we print it in the newspaper. So no kidding, we had a sign in our newsroom that said, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. <laughs> How do you know? Maybe she's lying. Got any proof to back that up? And that's okay. It's okay for journalists to be skeptical. Don't you wish sometimes they were more skeptical than they are? But here's my problem. My skepticism bubbled over into cynicism, and it cemented me into my atheism. Now, because I had no faith in God, I, I really lacked a moral framework for my life. Now, I'm not saying all atheists are like this. I'm just saying... This is the way I looked at the world. I tend to be rational. I tend to be logical. So I said, okay, if there is no heaven, if there is no hell, if there is no judgment, if there is no ultimate accountability, then the most logical way for me to live my life would be as a hedonist, someone who just pursued pleasure. And that's what I did. And so I lived a very immoral and drunken, and profane, and narcissistic, self-absorbed, really, in, in a lot of ways, self-destructive kind of a life. That was my life. 
What people saw was me winning awards for investigative reporting. What they didn't see was the other side, which was me literally drunk in the snow in an alley on Saturday night. I had so much rage inside me, so much anger. And if you ask me back then, what's the deal? Why the anger? I couldn't have told you. But looking back, I know what it was. I was always after the perfect high. You know, I I was always after that ultimate experience of pleasure. And guess what? Everything let me down. Nothing lived up to the hype. So I had a lot of rage. I remember once, Leslie and I, my wife, got in an argument, and our little daughter was there. And, and, and I, I just had so much rage, I blew up. I remember I reared back, and I kicked a hole right through our living room wall. And my wife's crying, and my daughter's crying. It's like, hey, you know, just another day in the Strobel house. In fact, I'm going to tell you the ugliest thing about me which is when my little daughter Allison was just a toddler. If she was alone in the living room, playing with some blocks, some toys or whatever, and she would hear me come home from work through the front door, her natural reaction was just to gather her toys and go in her room and shut the door. Is she going to be drunk again? Is she going to be yelling and screaming and, and, and kicking holes in walls? You know what? At least it's nice and quiet in here. Friends, that is the ugliest truth about me. My wife, Leslie, was agnostic. She didn't know what to think about spiritual stuff. And then if you've seen the movie, you know it was through some circumstances that we met a woman who was a Christian nurse. And she became best friends with my wife. And it was very natural for this woman in in the movie. um, I can't remember the name they gave her. Her real name was Linda. Um... Uh, it was very natural for Linda in the course of their friendship to talk to Leslie about God because God was such an important part of Linda's life. And Leslie wasn't hostile toward this stuff. Nobody had ever told her this stuff before. So she asked questions. She went to church with her. She checks it out. And then finally, after many months, she comes up to me. and She said, Lee, I made a big decision. I said, what? She said, I've decided to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And I thought, oh, no. You know, for an atheist, this is the worst possible news. thought she was going to turn into some holy roller or something. I don't know what was going to happen. But this wasn't part of the deal. My first reaction, my first thought was divorce. I was going to walk out. But then I hatched a plot. I figured, well, what if I were able to rescue her from this cult that she's gotten involved in? What if I were able to disprove Christianity? That can't be that hard because I realize that everything in Christianity hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus, in a variety of different ways, made transcendent and messianic and divine claims about himself. He claimed to be the Son of God. At one point, he got up before a group and he said, I and the Father are one. And the word in Greek there for one is not masculine, it's neuter which means Jesus was not saying I and the Father are the same person. He was saying I and the Father are the same thing. We're one in nature. We're one in essence. And how did the audience understand what he was saying? They picked up stones to kill him because they said, you, you're just a man, and you're claiming that you're God. So Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. But so what? I could claim to be the Son of God. Anybody could claim to be God. But if Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, died, and then three days later rose from the dead? That's pretty good evidence he's telling the truth, right? 
That's why the resurrection is the linchpin of the Christian faith. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. So this is the ball game. So I launched on an investigation using my legal training and journalism training to, to try to get to the bottom of the historical data for the resurrection, hoping that I could disprove it and rescue my wife from Christianity. So what I want to do for the next few minutes, I just want to hit some of the highlights of the evidence I encountered during that two-year investigation. And frankly, since then, because now it's become a lifelong study. But I'm going to do this because, you know, Easter is coming up. And Easter begins with the letter E. So I'm going to use four words that begin with the letter E to summarize the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. That way it'll be easy to remember. You might want to have a conversation with someone between now and Easter about this kind of stuff, and it's easy to remember the the evidence. Let me stress, though, when I did this investigation, I did not give the New Testament any special credibility. I didn't consider it to be inerrant, inspired, the Word of God. I do now, but I was a skeptic then. But I had to accept the New Testament for what it undeniably is, which is a set of ancient historical writings. And I knew, just as you can investigate any ancient writing, whether it's by Josephus or Suetonius or Tacitus, you can take those same investigative techniques and apply them to the New Testament to try to determine, is it telling me the truth? So in other words, I didn't just open the Bible, oh, it says Jesus was resurrected, end of story. I wanted to dig beneath that. How do I know? It really happened. So what are the four words that begin with the letter E that summarize the evidence for the resurrection? The first word is the word uh, execution. You have to have a death first, right, before you can have a, a resurrection. And what I learned very quickly is that there is virtually no dispute among historians around the world. Now, I'm not just talking about Christians. I'm talking about the wide range of scholarship. There is virtually no dissent from the conclusion that Jesus was dead after being crucified under Pontius Pilate. Why? Because when we study ancient history, we're lucky if we get one or maybe two sources to confirm a fact. And yet, for the death of Jesus, we not only have multiple early first-century accounts in the documents of the New Testament, we've also got five ancient sources outside the Bible confirming and corroborating his death. This is so well established of an historical fact, you would get laughed out of a major academic institution if you came in and said, no, 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 I don't think Jesus was crucified. I don't think he did die on the cross. In fact, no less of an authoritative source than the Journal of the American Medical Association, which is a peer-reviewed, scientific, secular medical journal, published an investigation into the historical and medical evidence concerning the death of Jesus. And I'll read you one sentence to summarize their conclusion. Quote, Clearly, the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. Friends, this is so well established, you could go to an atheist New Testament scholar, like Gerd Ludeman, formerly of Vanderbilt University. He'll tell you this, quote, Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. Indisputable. Now, I don't know how much you study ancient history, but there are very few facts of ancient history that a skeptical, critical, atheist historian like a Gerd Ludeman will say is indisputable. 
One of those facts is the death of Jesus, the first E is for execution. Jesus was dead. The second E, I think, is the most fascinating. Stands for the word early. We have early reports or early accounts that Jesus rose from the dead. In other words, reports that come virtually immediately after his death. Why is that significant? Because I used to think, like a lot of skeptics, that the resurrection was a legend. And I knew it took time for legend to develop in the ancient world, so I figured 100, 150, 200 years after the life of Jesus, legends were invented, mythologies were spun, and this is where the idea of the resurrection came from. But what I learn decimates the claim that the resurrection is a legend. Follow me on this. I think this is fascinating. We have preserved for us a creed of the earliest Christians, a creedal statement based on eyewitness accounts that the very first Christians right there in the first century would rally around based on facts that they knew to be true. Now, this creed contains the essence of Christianity. It says Jesus died. Why? For our sins. He was buried. On the third day, he rose from the dead, and then it mentions the specific names of eyewitnesses and groups of eyewitnesses to, to whom he appeared, including skeptics and opponents. Now, what's important about this report of the resurrection is how immediately it developed after the death of Jesus. Remember we said it took time for legend to develop? Well, we can date this creed. How? Because we know that the Apostle Paul, about 22 years after the death of Jesus, wrote a letter, and he included this creed. It was a letter he sent to the church in Corinth. We call it 1 Corinthians. And if you want to look up the creed later, it's in 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 3. So, Paul writes this letter 22 years after the death of Jesus, reports this eyewitness-based account, this creed of his resurrection, But in the context, you realize he's indicating, I had already given you this creed on an earlier visit. So let's say within 20 years of the death of Jesus, this creed is already being given to the church in Corinth. Now, we could stop there, and that would be very impressive historically, within 20 years. Because when you think about it, the first two biographies of Alexander the Great by Arian and Plutarch written 400 years after his life, and they're generally considered reliable. So within 20 years is pretty good, but guess what? We can go back a lot earlier. How? Because we know historically that Paul used to be Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor, a hater of Christians. One to three years after the death of Jesus, he's on the road to Damascus, Boom, he has this encounter with the risen Christ. He becomes the Apostle Paul. Immediately, he goes into Damascus, and who does he meet with? He meets with some apostles. Now, many historians believe this is when he was given this creed that he later wrote in the letter. But others are more skeptical. Others say, wait a minute, it may have been three years later. Three years later, Paul goes to Jerusalem And he meets for 15 days with two eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus who are specifically named in the creed, Peter and James. And the Greek word that Paul uses in Galatians to describe this 15-day meeting suggests that this was an investigative meeting. They weren't talking about the weather. They weren't talking about March Madness. They were talking about what do you know? What did you see? What did you experience? They're checking each other out. Many scholars say this is when Paul was given the creed that he later gave to the church in Corinth. But either way, 
This means within one to six years after the death of Jesus, this creed is already in existence. Therefore, the beliefs that make up that creed go back even earlier, virtually to the cross itself. So the point is, there's no huge time gap between the death of Jesus and the later development of a legend that he rose from the dead. We got a news flash. goes right back to the beginning. In fact, one of the most prominent historians in the world, uh, James D.G. Dunn, said this, quote, This tradition, by that he means this creed, we can be entirely confident was formulated as a creed within months of Jesus' death. Within months. Friends, historians drool over this. This is a newsflash from ancient history. When you consider that probably the greatest classical historian who ever lived, A.N. Sherwin-White of Oxford and Cambridge, studied the rate at which legend developed in the ancient world. And he said the passage of two generations of time is not even enough for legend to grow up and wipe out a solid core of historical truth. We don't have two generations of time passing here. we got a newsflash goes right back to the beginning. Friends, I can't find any other example in history where a legend would develop that fast and wipe out a solid core of historical truth. And that's not the only early report we've got. We've got others in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the book of Acts, all of which date back so early that they were circulating during the lifetimes of Jesus' contemporaries who would have been all too happy to point out the errors if they were making this stuff up. Friends, we got a death, uh, uh, an execution. Jesus was dead. We've got reports of his resurrection that come so early, so immediate, you can't just dismiss them as being a legend. But that's not all we've got. We've got a third word that begins with the letter E, which is the word empty. We have an empty tomb. The historical record tells us that Jesus' body was placed in a tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea, member of the Jewish council. It's sealed. Matthew tells us it's guarded, and yet it's discovered empty on that, new, on that first Easter morning. Now, a very liberal agnostic scholar recently wrote a book and he said well yeah I'll, I'll give you the fact the tomb was empty but let me tell you why it was empty the body was never in it don't you know that the romans did not allow for the burial of crucifixion victims they threw their bodies to the dogs to be eaten by the dogs um, and therefore that's why the tomb of jesus was empty his body was never in it in the first place well Guess what? He's wrong. How do we know? Because archaeology tells us. Archaeologists have discovered the bodies of buried crucifixion victims. One of them, discovered in 1968, had the spike still through his heel bone with a bit of the olive wood from the cross attached. And just recently, they announced the discovery of another one, a buried crucifixion victim. What's more... The digesta, which was a summary of procedure and customs of the Roman Empire at that time, specifically allows for the burial of crucifixion victims. And so I think we can have confidence, as as many scholars do, that the body was in the tomb, and guess what? It was empty on the first Easter morning. How do we know it was empty? Well, we could go on all day for talking about the evidence, but I'm just going to give you one fact, because to me this says it all. And that's this. Even the enemies of Jesus admitted the tomb was empty. How do we know? 
Because when the disciples began proclaiming that Jesus had risen, what the opponents never said was, baloney, go open the tomb, you'll find the body. That's all they needed to say, and the onus would have been on the disciples to prove it. But they didn't say that. What did they say? We know from sources inside and outside the New Testament, when the disciples began proclaiming that Jesus had risen, what the opponents said was, oh, well, um, the disciples stole the body. Now think about that. What is that? That's a cover story. They're admitting the tomb is empty. They're trying to explain how it got empty. You see what I'm saying? I'll give you an example. Let's say you're a teacher here at Rock County Christian School, and a student comes up to you, and the student says, the dog ate my homework. That student's admitting, look, I don't have my homework, but I can explain what happened to it. The dog ate it. It's the same thing. So everybody in the ancient world is conceding, either implicitly or explicitly, that the tomb of Jesus was empty. The real question of history is, how did it get empty? And you go through the usual list of suspects. The Romans weren't about to steal the body. They wanted Jesus dead. The Jewish leaders of the day weren't about to steal the body. They wanted Jesus to stay dead. The disciples weren't about to steal the body. They didn't have the motive. They didn't have the means. They didn't have the opportunity. I think the best explanation for the tomb being empty is that Jesus physically returned from the dead, especially when we combine it with the fourth word that begins with the letter E, which is the word eyewitnesses. Not only was Jesus' tomb discovered empty, but over a period of time, Jesus appears alive in a dozen different instances to more than 515 people, to skeptics and doubters as well as to believers to men, to women, to groups, to individuals, indoor, outdoors, daytime, nighttime. The disciples touched him. They talked with him. They ate with him. Remember we said earlier, we're lucky in ancient history if we have one or maybe two sources to confirm a fact? Well, get this. For the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus, we have no fewer than nine ancient sources, inside and outside the New Testament, confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the risen Christ. Friends, that is an avalanche of historical data, and it transformed the disciples. The record tells us that when Jesus is put to death, they're afraid they're going to get executed. They're in hiding. They're going to go back to the fishing business. And yet, history undeniably shows that just a few weeks later, in the very same city where Jesus had been put to death, these once cowardly disciples are now proclaiming with boldness that Jesus not only claimed to be the Son of God, he backed up that claim by returning from the dead. And they were willing to proclaim that to their death. Now, we don't know what happened exactly to some of the disciples. The, you know, tradition and so forth tells us they all died for their faith, uh, with the exception of John, who was marooned on a, on a desert island. But, um, but what actually happened to them gets a little lost in the midst of history, but that's not the point. Their willingness to die for it is not in dispute. Why? Because we have seven ancient sources, six of them outside the Bible, telling us the disciples lived lives of deprivation and suffering as a result of their proclamation that Jesus had risen. Why were they willing to do that? Why were they willing to endure that? Because a Sunday school teacher told them that Jesus rose? No. Because they saw it on the Internet? No. Because uh, 
you know, there was a blog someplace that told them? No, because they were there. They touched him. They talked with him. They ate with him. Of all human beings who've ever lived in history, the disciples were in a unique position. They were there. They knew whether this is true or whether it's a lie. And knowing it was true, they were willing to suffer and even to die for their proclamation. That tells me something about the truth of their convictions. Friends, I spent almost two years of my life investigating the minutia of the evidence surrounding the resurrection. And it all came down to one Sunday. And I'd gone to church with my wife that morning, and I went home, and um, I just got alone. And I said, you know what? A good juror reaches a verdict. I mean, the evidence was in. After two years, I wasn't going to find out anything new. The evidence was in. I had to reach a verdict. So I reviewed, I, I, I gathered all the evidence I'd accumulated over this two years, books and files and all this stuff, and, and, and I kind of went through it all one more time. And then I, I sort of stepped back and I said, well, wait a second. In light of the avalanche of evidence that points so powerfully toward the truth of Christianity, I realized it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. I mean, the scales just tipped at that moment. And I realized, based on the weight of the historical data, I was convinced that Jesus not only claimed to be the Son of God, but he backed up that claim by returning from the dead. But then, you know what? I kind of felt let down. It was kind of anticlimactic to me, because it's like, okay, am I done? Is that it? Go back to life as normal? Is that, is, is that But then my wife Leslie pointed out a verse to me. John 1, 12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And as I looked at that verse, I realized it forms an equation of what it means to become a child of God. Believe plus receive equals become. So I believed based on the data that Jesus was the Son of God. He proved it by returning from the dead. I believed it. But I realized that was not enough. I had to receive. Receive what? Receive this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus purchased for me on the cross when he died as my substitute to pay for all of my sin. And when I would receive that free gift of his grace, then I would become a child of God. So I got on my knees. And I poured out a confession of a lifetime of immorality that would absolutely curl your hair. And at that moment, I received complete and total forgiveness through Jesus Christ, and I became a child of God. And my wife... My wife threw her arms around my neck, and she was crying, and she said, I almost gave up on you a thousand times. She said, when I was a new Christian, I met some women at church, and I told them about you. And I said, I don't have any hope for my husband. He is the hard-headed, hard-hearted legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. He will never bend his knee to Jesus. And this one elderly saint put her arm around Leslie's shoulder, kind of pulled her to the side, and she said, oh, Leslie, no one is beyond hope. And she gave her a verse from the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, 26. It says, moreover, I will give you a new heart 
and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And what I never knew, that whole two years that I'm on that investigative journey, what I never knew was every day my wife, behind the scenes, by herself, on her knees, was praying that verse for me. And can I tell you what happened? Starting on that Sunday afternoon, now that I had received this free gift of God's grace, and then over time, as I, my life changed, as I, as I was baptized, as I learned to worship, as I, as I learned to read the Bible with fresh eyes, as I learned to pray, God began to answer her prayers because my values changed, and my morality changed, and my character changed and my relationships, and my priorities, and my worldview, and my attitudes, and my philosophy, and my parenting, and my marriage. I mean, all these things, over time, began to change for the good. And this is where I would always get stuck. Because someone would say to me, well, Lee, tell me your story. How did you come to faith? Oh, sure. So I tell them the story all the way to this point. And then I, I got stuck because I, I, I was thinking, what words can I use to help you understand the difference that God has made in my life? Because you didn't know me back then. You didn't know me when I was literally drunk in the snow in an alley on Saturday night. So how, how can I help you understand? You see what I'm saying? Those that know me, they get it. But I've never met you, and so... What words could I use to help you understand the transformation that God has produced in my life? And finally, I just I, I came up with one thing, and that's what happened to my little girl. Think about this for a second. My little daughter, Allison, for the first five years of her life, all she knew was a dad who was absent, angry, kicking holes in walls, coming home drunk. That was her entire life experience for the first five years of her life. But starting on that Sunday afternoon when I put my trust in Christ, you know what she did? She started to watch. Something's changing with my dad. Something's different with my dad. Something's new with my dad. She never studied ancient history, never interviewed a scholar, never studied archaeology. She's just five years old. But she could watch, she could listen, she could observe, and she did. And it took about four or five months And then one Sunday morning, she came up to Leslie. You know what she said? I want God to do for me what he's done for Daddy. And at age five, my little girl received this free gift of God's grace, became a child of God. Today, she's married to a seminary graduate. She's a novelist. She's written half a dozen books of fiction that have been published, but they all have the gospel of Jesus woven into them. Her and her husband together write children's books about God. She is the mother of two of my four precious grandchildren. And today we're the best of friends. And same thing with my son. My son saw at a young age a difference God was making in his dad and his mom and his sister. And he came to faith at a young age too, but he took an academic route. He got an undergraduate degree in biblical studies. Then he got a master's degree in philosophy of religion. Then he got another master's degree in New Testament And then after many years of research and study at Yale University and at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, he was awarded his Ph.D. in theology. And you know what he does today? He's a professor of theology at one of the largest Christian seminaries in America, 
teaching future pastors about Jesus Christ. And five years ago, his wife gave birth to our first grandson, and he named him after his dad. Friends, God rescued our family. He changed my son. He changed my daughter. He changed my wife. He changed me. And now Leslie and I just celebrated our 46th wedding anniversary together. And now, if I can add this without crying, we see the legacy now in our grandchildren. My two oldest grandchildren, Abigail and Penelope, 13 years old and 11 years old. You know what they do in their spare time? They go down to the inner city of Houston, Texas, where the homeless people are. And they reach out to them, and they feed them, and they tell them about Jesus Christ. And then they go up to them, and they they take their hands in theirs, and they look them in the eye, and they say, what can I pray for you? Friends, God changed my wife, my son, my daughter, me, And now, one by one, our four grandchildren. That is the power of God to transform human lives. So what do you do with this? What what do you do? Let me me just end by applying my story to you. Um, Let's go back to that equation, believe plus receive equals become. And just say, you know, you may be here and you don't yet believe that Jesus is the Son of God. A friend invited you to come, and maybe you're more like I was, and you're more of a skeptic. Can I tell you something? If you do not yet believe that Jesus is the unique Son of God who proved it by returning from the dead, I want to say that's okay. It's all right. As long as you do what I did and you check it out. The Old Testament and the New Testament both say if you sincerely seek God, guess what? You're going to find him. So do your own investigation. If my books are helpful, that's great. We have some here. But you know what? You can go to the library and check them out for free. Um, movie, uh, Case for Christ, movies free on Netflix. Uh, but you owe it to yourself to check it out with an open heart and an open mind to come to your own verdict in the Case for Christ. But let me end with this. Some of you may believe, but you've never received I mean, your life hasn't really changed. You believe the right stuff, which is terrific. That's wonderful. But there's never really been a point in time where you have turned from your sin, received forgiveness through Jesus Christ, and according to John 1.12, become a child of God. Why is it when you go to church, you hear people talking about how they have a deep and a rich and a real and an authentic and a personal relationship with God. And you hear them talking this way, and, and, and you're sitting there going, in the back of your mind, why is it not like that with me? Why does God seem distant from me? Could it be because you believe the right stuff, which is great, but there's never really been a time where you have received his free gift of grace? Friends, I'm just asking but I couldn't forgive myself. I came all the way from Houston, Texas. I didn't give you a chance. If you, if you realize, yeah, I, I know what Lee is saying is true. The evidence is there. Jesus is who he claimed to be. He proved it by returning from the dead. If you believe as best you can, I want to give you a chance to receive so you can, you can know for the rest of your life. Oh, I remember it. I prayed with Lee Strobel that day. 
I know I'm secure. The Bible says these things are written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. God doesn't want you wondering where you stand with him. He doesn't want you in a state of ambiguity or confusion about where you stand with him. The Bible says you can know that you have been adopted by the Most High as his son or his daughter. You don't have to know everything to know something. You know what you can know with confidence? Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, and he backed it up by returning from the dead. That's all you need for now. So let's just close our eyes and bow our heads. And if you want to take that step, I'm not going to ask you to do anything weird. Just in your heart, God will hear you. Just in your heart. Say, Lord Jesus, as best I can, I do believe that you are the Son of God. You proved it by returning from the dead. And right now, I confess the obvious, which is that I am a sinner. And I want to turn from that. And in an attitude of repentance and faith, I want to receive this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that you purchased for me on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me so much that you endured the torture of crucifixion so that we could be reconciled forever. Help me, Jesus, to live the kind of life that you want me to live because from this moment on, I am yours. And now, Father, we know from Luke 15 that a party breaks out in heaven whenever a sinner repents, receives forgiveness through your Son. So we celebrate with those who have taken that step today. For those that are still on the journey, for those with too many questions and too many doubts, Father, we pray by your Holy Spirit you would open their eyes to their need for a Savior, that you would open their eyes to the truth of who you are so that someday we could celebrate their rebirth as well. And Father, for the rest of us who have been your followers maybe for a long, long time, we thank you that you have called us to be your salt and light in an increasingly skeptical world. We pray for a blessing on Rock County Christian School, on the staff, on the teachers, on the volunteers, on those who pray for this school, on the parents and the grandparents, and especially on the students themselves. Father, use them to be stronger salt and brighter light to make a difference for you in the coming years. We thank you for all this. We pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you all. It's been wonderful to be with you. I appreciate the opportunity. God bless. All right, so that was Lee Strobel. Ray, I was, I was blessed by that. I, there, I, I learned a few things there. Yeah, Lee, Lee has a, a way about him that is uh, quite interesting. He used to be a self-professing uh, atheist, yep. uh, was the top-notch journalist for the uh, Chicago Tribune. And that's how he approached all of his books and uh, the DVDs he's done about these topics. He talks to people who have studied and spent a good portion of their lives looking into these things. And uh, it helped him come to faith. And we hope that it, uh, if you're out there and you're not a believer, that uh, this will help you at least start asking questions. Yeah. And it'll give some information that you may not have had in your witnessing to others. 
All right, so our recommended resource for this week is The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, and I'm holding in my hands here an autographed copy of this book that could be yours, and we'll talk about how you can, uh, how you can get this book. We're going to give this away. So um, check our website for more details, www.basicbiblepodcast.org, or email us at basicbiblepodcast at gmail.com with your questions, your comments. If you want to learn more about this topic, or you want to reach out and talk to Ray and I, uh, that would be a good resource for you as well. Uh, we also have a phone number you can call, and I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but I'll post it on our website. Okay. So. In fact, it is on our website. You can check there uh, for that or email us, and we'd love to talk with you. So, Ray, I hope you had a good Easter today. Happy Easter, everyone. Um, so we'll see you back next week.